Beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these troubled, violent times of pandemics, rising authoritarianism, and racial capitalism? And what beauty can we find in our resistance? I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a United Church of Christ minister, and I'm the faith organizing coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE. I live in the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians. White Christians turning towards other white Christians to talk about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy And also we believe we have a responsibility to tell a new story about Christianity for white Christian folks, because our lives, all our lives, depend on it. And we do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the freedom movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. The word is resistance. Beloveds, how are you doing? How is it with you and your tender hearts these days? I hope that you've been finding some good nourishment for your bodies and spirits and souls. I've been enjoying the surprise medicine growing in a rather overgrown garden bed in our yard. Blue Vervain found her way into our sanctuary, and I couldn't be more happy to welcome her. She's a beautiful remedy for anxiety and calming a racing mind, and gosh, I definitely need that. And maybe you do too. Living inside the violent imagination and material impact of empires takes a toll on the body, the soul, the spirit. Hopefully, as we've been wrestling our way through Romans, you're learning that along with us, that Paul understands that too. I think that one of the gifts of this series for me is realizing how much love Paul has for his people, both his Jewish people and his Gentile people, and how clearly he understands how living inside empire harms us, body, soul, spirit. How whatever salvation is being sold by Rome is a a lie and a slander. How God cares about our bodies. How there are ways to root out what empire does to our spirits. And how Gentiles finding their, our, shared interest in us is to find our way to freedom. We're about halfway through this series, and today we start into a couple of sticky chapters, 9 through 11, with uh, the opening verses of chapter 9 today, which are actually still part of the end of chapter 8. Hot tip. 
I did not know until I was in seminary that the original Greek texts of the New Testament do not have chapters and verses. Somebody just made those up later and stuck them in. Wild. So at any rate, I'm going to back up and add a few verses from the end of chapter 8 so that we can remember and connect these things together. Chapter 9 starts after the famous nothing can separate us from the love of God part. So this is Romans 8, 36 through 9, 5. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through the one who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Empires, conquerors, colonizers make shit up about the people and the land that they conquer and colonize. And the shit that they make up are the stories they use to excuse their violence, their rampant taking, their mechanisms to enrich themselves at the expense of everyone else. The British told those stories and still tells them about African peoples it enslaved, about Asian and Islander peoples it colonized, about the Irish and Scottish and Welsh. The U.S. tells these stories too, like that indigenous people were godless savages, that their land was empty and there for the taking, that conversion even at the point of the sword was for their own good, that black Africans were subhuman and only worthy of enslavement for labor their behavior suspicious and worthy of being constantly surveilled and controlled. Heck, Florida is trying to sell us the slander that enslaved people benefited from enslavement. Same old shit, y'all. Queers, women, trans folk, immigrants, Jewish folks, Middle Easterners, there are so many stories, so many stereotypes, so much made-up shit used to justify the violence of empire. It was no different for the people of Israel during the Roman Empire. But before I get to that, I want to tell you, you know, (laughs) this series on Romans is hard. 
Sharon mentioned this in her episode last week, that she was swirling in unending cycles of misunderstanding and unending layers of misinterpretation. And I feel that, especially this week, when I confessed to my supervisor this week that I was a bit stuck. Okay, more like a lot stuck. She very kindly reminded me that what we're doing in this series, there's not really a blueprint for it. We're trying something nobody's tried before and going somewhere nobody's gone before. And so it's unknown and it's hard and it's okay not to have all the answers right now. And I don't. And she's right. In digging past all those cycles and layers of what Romans is to Christians and then trying to figure out what Paul maybe actually meant then and then trying to figure out what that means for us now, it's a lot. We have some good signposts, and still it's a lot. And it feels scary and vulnerable to be out here doing a thing that hasn't been done and which challenges a lot of the ways Christianity holds on to its dominating power. Oof, I feel it in my belly. And I think it's important to say this because I think posturing like we know it all and have all the answers or pretending like this isn't scary and hard doesn't actually serve us or help us get free. It's part of the problem that God is here. As Angela Davis says, freedom is a constant struggle and we, beloveds, are in it. And I'm super grateful for this podcast crew because none of us are doing this alone. We've got emails and text threads cheering each other on. And we also have you. If you're here, you're doing this along with us. Like maybe you've been longing for a different way of understanding Paul and Romans too. Maybe you've wondered why Paul seems to contradict himself, or if he really meant the things we read and interpret for harm. Whatever your reason, you're here. And we're all on this road together, y'all. Signposts and courage and Paul singing love songs to his people. For I am convinced these verses, and maybe even all of Romans, are a love song to God, to Paul's people, both his Jewish people and his Gentile people. So yes, the Roman Empire made up shit about the Jewish people to justify Roman violence and colonization. And I use the word justify on purpose because that's the language Rome used for itself and the story it tells for why the empire and the emperor get to have so much power language which Paul then turns on its head for very different purposes in Romans. I talked about this in the very first episode of this series, and it's important here too, because getting a clearer understanding of what Neil Elliott calls the quote-unquote precise historical contours of what is churning in the background and foreground of Romans can help us not only understand the letter better, but also help us get clearer about what Paul actually thought about his own people of the flesh, the Israelites, the Jewish people in Judea and the diaspora. I think this is a place we get snagged on in our swirling and cycling and digging through all the layers. What does Paul actually think about the Jews? I say sometimes that it's not enough to just declare that Paul was still a Jew, although he definitely was, because mostly that simple declaration hasn't changed 
what we actually think he's saying. We still assume that what we've been taught he means is still what he means, at least when it comes to the Jews. That, for example, his anguish he speaks of in this text today must be about the fact that Jews aren't converting to Christianity. Even though nowhere does Paul actually say that. So in order to understand what this anguish is that Paul is talking about, we need to understand better those precise historical contours. This is where those good signposts I mentioned come in. And so what I want to do is just share with you some of these signposts and see where they lead us. And specifically, I'm sharing four, four signposts that I've clung to from Pamela Eisenbaum's book, Paul is Not a Christian, and Neil Elliott's Arrogance of Nations. And I want us to imagine these four signposts, not only as a post with a street sign or a place name pointing us in a specific direction, but also a signpost with a lamp at the top shedding some light so we can actually see where we are. Not that darkness is intrinsically bad, but simply recognizing that we need some help peering under and behind and through all the layers piled on Romans like so many old blankets. And so a bit of light can help us. So four lamp-lit signposts illuminating what is around us and pointing us in a direction, maybe several directions, like the four points on a compass orienting us to both where we are and also how to get where we're going, and all at work to help us not get lost. I'm not sure how many metaphors I have going on in this moment, but you know what? Paul kind of does the same thing in Romans, so maybe that's just part of how we figure out our way forward here together. So let's all take a breath, and then let's go for lamplit signpost compass points. So our first signpost is to go back to the beginning to remind ourselves what Paul is even doing in Romans. I'll quote Pam Eisenbaum here. The starting assumption is that Romans is not about personal salvation. Romans is not an answer to the question, how can I be saved? Rather, it is his answer to the question, how will the world be redeemed? Unquote. As we've said in this series, Romans is Paul's argument about God's sovereignty against the claims of the sovereignty of Rome and Caesar. And also, it's about how Gentiles are to understand themselves as part of the lineage of God's us, and not the Roman us, God's us. And also about how Gentiles are to participate in the redemption of the world, A redemption which has nothing to do with individual sin and everything to do with putting the world right, as Pam Eisenbaum says. Everything to do with liberation from the violent imagination and death machinery of Rome. And also, also, it's addressing how some, a small sum, 
of Jewish folks are not doing their part in that participation, which, spoiler alert, has nothing to do with Jesus. And also, 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 how the Roman Gentile members of the Roman Assembly have bought into the Roman Empire's slander of the Jewish people and Paul setting the Gentiles correct, which is actually mostly his whole point. And Paul doesn't make a nice, neat, linear argument. He's often moving and overlapping these pieces in like some kind of intricate Celtic spiral that can be really confusing if we're still assuming he's talking about accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and also because English translations also still assume that. I wish you could see chapter 9 in my Bible because it's all marked up with where the NRSV translated within that assumption or even put stuff in that's not there. At any rate, we've been talking in this series a bit about these arguments about Gentiles. That's what the lectionary texts have mostly been focusing on. So I want to take a moment here to talk about Jewish participation in the redemption of the world. So this is the second signpost then, which is about being light. I'm again calling on Dr. Eisenbaum, who demonstrates that Israel's role in God's plan for redemption is to be a light to the peoples, the nations, the Gentiles. To be a light is to practice the faithfulness of Abraham, which is choosing trust, choosing loyalty to the one God, and embodying the practices that demonstrate that faithfulness. To be a light To choose loyalty to the one God, Hashem Echad, is in fact to choose an anti-imperial faithfulness. Because first of all, empires try to make you faithful to them, to their beliefs about themselves and about you, and to their practices that ultimately perpetuate their death machinery. And second of all, to be a light is anti-imperial faithfulness because the practices God asks of Israel in that faithfulness, those practices that are Israel's participation in God's redemption of the world, are practices that assure the well-being of everyone. Everyone, including all those that empires love to blame and exploit, the widow, the alien, the orphan, the poor and the worker, the animals, and even the land, everyone, and all of creation. To be a light to the peoples, the nations, is to show another way is possible. And the nations get to participate in that way too, not by conversion, but by practicing the faithfulness of Abraham, which is the vision offered by several prophets and which Paul references as well. Which is not to say that some members of Israel don't get this wrong, because they do. The Hebrew Bible is so much about this tension of some members getting pulled away towards empire or acting like empire or trusting the promises of empire, which takes us to the third signpost, which is about stumbling and about time. Later in chapter 9, in verses which the lectionary never includes, Paul writes about some of Israel stumbling, but not, he says in chapter 11, in verses which the lectionary also never includes, but not so as to fall. Stumbling, but not so as to fall. 
I want to make a quick aside here and say the lectionary editors do us a real disservice by not ever including these admittedly tr really tricky text in the lectionary, because if you only follow the lectionary, not only do you never hear them, but also preachers never have to wrestle with them either. Add to that that many progressive or moderate preachers just choose not to deal with Paul, kind of like how we've avoided Paul on this very podcast. And what we end up with is an inability to offer a counter-argument and more importantly, a counter-vision to the Christian right, which has no qualms about turning these texts to serve and defend their view of power and dominance. That's one of the reasons we're doing this series, right? And why we spend the time to fill in the gaps the lectionary editors leave behind. So back to the stumbling. The stumbling of some, not all, and not stumbling to fall which is to say that the stumbling is a temporary situation, or to borrow Paul's own words from 2 Corinthians, it's a slight momentary affliction. But what is this stumbling of some, not all? We'll start with what Neil Elliott points out, that, quote, Paul nowhere expresses concern that more Judeans are not flocking to church services, unquote. I love that sentence. So stumbling isn't about Jews not converting to Christianity or believing in Jesus. What concerns Paul is God's sovereignty, faithfulness in trusting God's promises. And so though Paul doesn't name the precise historical contour specifically surrounding his letter and informing his anguish, his audience would have known, and we also know. For example, those Jewish collaborators with Rome in Judea and Jerusalem, those Roman-appointed high-level temple officials the gospel writers are also mad at. Eliot also reminds us that the re recent background of Romans, which Paul most certainly would have known about because it was a very big deal, was the pogrom in Alexandria in 38-41 to 41 CE. Alexandria had possibly the highest concentration of Jews in the diaspora. And the story is, well, it's kind of messy. First, because there's a lot of unrest about Roman taxation, which applied only to non-citizens, which the Jewish people were not. One way Jewish leaders um, tried to relieve their co collective tax burden was to petition the emperor for citizenship status. But there were also protests and other forms of resistance. On top of that, there were Roman factions in Alexandria supporting and opposing the current Caesar, Gaius. Supporters of Gaius, says Eliot, cajoled the governor of Alexandria, Flaccus, into enacting severe anti-Judean policies in exchange for not denouncing him before the, empire, the emperor. And Flaccus did, leading to arrests and humiliation of Jewish people, stealing synagogue property, beatings, torture, and murder. Gaius intervened, and we're going to come back to that with the fourth signpost, but what happened in the aftermath was that a delegation of Alexandrian Jewish leaders, including Jewish philosopher Philo, petitioned the emperor for support. Now, we may think delegations to petition power for a just cause, which is to say to petition power for justice and for basic rights and to achieve vindication, is just good basic strategy. We've probably done it. I certainly have. 
Paul didn't see it that way, though. Paul sees it as stumbling, because it meant, in Eliot's words, taking imperial pretensions to justice at face value and suing for equal rights under law, unquote. Law here being Roman law. For Paul, believing in, trusting in the Roman Empire to keep their promise to do what God has actually promised, i.e. the redemption or the well-being of the whole world, that is stumbling. Some, not all, are not being a light. Whether it's as collaborators or as petitioners, some, not all, Jewish folks think that the emperor's mercy will save them. They are faithful to or trusting in empire and not God. They are not being light. In fact, they are trying to achieve salvation via works, such as by petitioning the emperor. I want to highlight that again, that salvation or justification by works isn't about not believing in Jesus or about Jesus versus Torah. It's about thinking that empire will save you. It's about forgetting that when empire says it will keep its promises, what it means is it will keep its promises only if you're faithful to the empire. Paul would say, you can't do that and also be faithful to the one God. Hashem Echad. And I want to highlight two more things here, which is that the problem of faithfulness to empire isn't a uniquely Jewish problem, but rather a very human one, first of all. And second, that the Jewish faithfulness to the one God is not lacking Christ. Jewish faithfulness to God and to being the light of the world does not depend on Jesus. They have all they need in the Torah to know how to do that. Paul says this in Romans, but it gets lost. Jews and Judaism are not lacking. They and their practice and their faithfulness are full and complete. And this is where time comes in. Because if Grace Lee Boggs were to ask Paul her famous question, what time is it on the clock of the world? Paul would be like, you know what time it is. That's literally Romans 13, 11. You know what time it is. God keeps God's promises and the promises are coming like now. God saves God's people from this kind of imperial bullshit. That's what our beautiful, incredible story and lineage teach us. And God's going to do that like now. The execution of Jesus is a sign for Gentiles that God's about to act the sign that should show them how utterly corrupt the Roman Empire is. And raising life from death is proof that God keeps God's promises. Christ is the sign that it's time for the Gentiles to do their part. Not everybody agrees with Paul about what time it is on the clock of the world, but I don't think Paul is worried much about Jewish folks who are practicing faithfulness to the one God, regardless of what they think about what time it is. No, Paul is bothered by the Jewish folks, the some, not all, who are turning to the empire to obtain the justice that God actually promises, who have sought to establish their own justice, as it says in Romans 10.3, and provoke from Rome the coming of the material conditions of collective well-being and safety promised in the messianic age. 
That's who and what Paul is upset about. And even he thinks they come correct in God's mystery of redemption. All Israel will be saved in Romans 11 means just that, all. And Neil Elliott argues that actually Paul bringing up the some not all stumbling Jewish folks isn't so much to make an argument about whether or not they're in or out of God's care and ultimate vision of history. The point of talking about the stumbling is to get at the Roman members of the assembly to argue about God's promises and mercy in the face of these Roman members who have linked this stumbling to their own standing in Christ and conclude that they have supplanted, which is to say superseded, a whole fallen Israel, the same way Rome supplanted Judea. The Roman assembly members' conclusion is the same logic of the Roman Empire, that there must be those at the top who deserve to be there, and those at the bottom deserve to be at the bottom because they're unworthy, impious, and weak. That logic says the imperial hierarchy reflects a heavenly hierarchy of the elect and worthy versus the conquered and accursed. For Roman imperial logic, the fact of a people's defeat by Rome justifies Rome's power and worthiness. So Paul brings up the stumbling to declare to the Romans that this is not how God works. The fact of stumbling does not dictate history, does not dictate that God will then not keep God's promises to save all Israel and the Gentiles do. It does not mean that some are cut off or rejected because they understandably panicked before that could happen. By no means. Why, Paul says, and this is what he's worked up about, why are you Romans believing the slander about my people? Why are you believing the shit Rome made up about my beautiful people, the very shit they used to excuse their violence against us? They are leading us like lambs to the slaughter. Which brings us to the fourth signpost. At last. I need a breath. Do you? Take a quick breath. The fourth signpost is about slander in order to get us regrounded in today's text. I've already spoken to this a few times in this episode about slander. This is the language Paul uses in Romans, that his people have been slandered and that they have been blasphemed. Slander is how Gaius and then Claudius responded to the Alexandrian Jewish delegation, blaming them for the violence against them declaring, and I quote Claudius, that they are fomenting a common plague for the whole world. We also have the example of expulsions of Jews in Rome by various emperors in the first century, including Claudius in 49 CE, not long before Romans is actually written. These expulsions were to maintain law and order, in part likely because of Jewish resistance to Roman taxation and other repression, but also because the mere existence of a people faithful to the one God and not the emperor was in itself a disturbance to Roman law and order, which is to say to be Jewish in Roman logic was to be unlawful and disorderly, a slander. When Nero 
mercifully, hear the irony in my voice, mercifully allowed the Jews to return to Rome, it wasn't because he thought they were worthy. It was a way to bolster his own status as merciful. Look what I did for these poor people, so unworthy. Look how amazing I am. Slander. And again, as we've mentioned on the podcast before, there was a lot of Roman propaganda against Jews, both in Rome and throughout the diaspora, including in Judea, that Jews infested public areas, that their kosher food was miserable, that they were weak, something that comes up in Romans 14, that they were violent and troublemakers, that they, quote, wish to do evil yet reap rewards from it, which is Romans 3.8, that they deserved the violence Rome heaped upon them, that they are somehow God-forsaken. Slander, 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 Paul says. Again, mostly Romans is about the Roman members of the assembly believing this slander and about getting them to come correct in their practice of faithfulness to the one God by making common cause with their Jewish beloveds. We are not going to get free, y'all, if you keep acting like the empire, Paul says. Rome doesn't get to determine the future. God does. And in Eliot's words, it's a fatal mistake to think otherwise. Don't you understand, Paul says, how much God actually loves you and how little the empire actually does? Selah, as the Psalms say. Let's breathe together here. So those are our four signposts, lampposts, compass points about our starting assumptions, about being a light, about stumbling in time, and about slander. So where are we? And where are we going? <laughs> Let's actually hear today's text again. And again, we're going to start back in chapter 8. As is written... For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through the one who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites, 
And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the Torah, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and matriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah who is over all. God be blessed forever. Amen. In the lamplight of these signposts, I hear Paul singing a love song, an anguished, grieving love song. Paul recognizes the real material danger of the Roman Empire, not only to his beloveds of the flesh, but also to his beloveds in the spirit, Jews and Gentiles both, us. He sees their suffering in different ways, sure, but he sees it the way Rome fucks up everybody somehow, body, soul, spirit. And Paul is absolutely convinced God is going to put an end to the suffering, that there is absolutely nothing Rome can do that can get in the way of God's love for the whole world. That God is going to put the world right, not because of human individual sinfulness, but because Rome is a violent, blaspheming mass of corruption. And still he anguishes because still the people are suffering like lambs to slaughter, especially his own people. So much anguish about the suffering Rome is causing via violence and slander, so much that he'd be willing to give up Jesus if it meant his people wouldn't suffer anymore. And look, This is a beautiful love song that declares all the opposites to all the slander Rome is trying to push, lifting up the utter worthiness and beauty of the Jewish people. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the Torah, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and matriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah who is over all, God blessed forever. This love song in the middle of Romans is the evidence that Paul does not think for one minute that God has forsaken God's people Israel. This love song is Paul's equivalent of Black is Beautiful, of Black Lives Matter, of every people throughout history singing love songs to themselves and declaring the imperial slander against them is not the truth. This is the truth, Paul sings. This is who we are. Glorious. A light. From a long lineage of faithful freedom fighters and a God who loves and treasures us, may their name be blessed forever. So where do we go from here? What does this mean for us now? What's the call to action from this place in the lamplight of signposts and compass points? So one thing is just, I have my own anguish 
sitting in the light of these signposts because what Paul warned the Romans about is what actually happened. Roman Christians believed the slander. I mean, we can see some of the seeds of Christian anti-Semitism in Roman propaganda, right? Paul's letter to the Romans became twisted into an argument about who is elect and who is accursed. Paul's letter was forced to carry an imperial burden that actually causes the letter to rip apart at the seams all those places where Paul is we think where we think Paul is contradicting himself and we just move on from. But this love song here in chapter 9 We have to remember this love song. And we Gentiles, we have to join our voices to it. Whatever that means to you. And it may seem simple after all of this to just say, sing a love song. But it really is that simple. And there are so many ways to do that. So many ways to join our voices to God's love song so that we can reject the slander that our own empire-beholden Christian tradition tells about Judaism and also reject the slander that our current imperial context tells about the people it considers unworthy, the shit that white supremacy and racial capitalism make up about our beloveds in spirit and also about ourselves. We have to join our voices in God's love song to the whole world, where the whole world gets to live free and safe and nourished and cherished. The whole world. All means all. Amen. Beloveds, thanks as always for joining us from wherever you are on this good earth. We'd love to hear from you, especially from folks of color and non-Christian folks, by filling out the listener survey on our podcast page at surge.org, S-U-R-J dot org. And give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org. And our podcast is on SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And we'll be back next week with a resistance word from Reverend Liz Carney as we continue on in our Wrestling with Romans series. Please send her your prayers because these lectionary selections from Romans 9 to 11 are, they are a lot. (laughs) And of course, um, as always, a huge thanks to our sound editor this week, Claire Hitchens. Especially this week, I just appreciate, Claire, so much your patience and flexibility as we wrestle with these texts well past our deadlines, just like me. Blessings to you all in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world and in all the ways you join your voice to God's love song. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. <laughs>